Welcome to Made Not Born, a podcast about learning to lead for creativity. I'm your host, Alison Chadwick. I coach talented people to help them become true modern leaders, because the best creative leaders are mostly made, not born. They work out how to get the best from others through a sometimes messy, but always fascinating journey of highs, lows and lessons. And this podcast is all about exploring that made, not born journey about seeing that leadership is something you can learn and picking up a little wisdom about how. I'm talking to some inspiring leaders with great stories to tell, inviting them to share what they've learned about leading for creativity from their own successes and struggles and what they're still learning now. So let's talk about leading for creativity with my guest today, Jay Oscarby. Jay is a highly acclaimed designer whose breadth of success is very hard to condense into a quick podcast introduction. Together with his partner, Ed Barber, Jay runs the internationally renowned industrial design studio, Barber Oscarby. From the success of their very first piece of furniture, the beautiful plywood loop table, now displayed in the V&A Museum in London and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, to their firmly established place now as stars of the design world, they've achieved incredible success. When I say they've collaborated with everyone from Stella McCartney to B&B Italia to Established and Sons, and have designed everything from a bench for Portsmouth Cathedral to a chair for fidgety students to the iconic 2012 London Olympic torch, I am literally scratching the surface of their innovative and iconic achievements. Recognised over the years with multiple accolades, including the Jerwood Prize in 2004, being named Designers of the Future in 2006, and receiving OBEs for Services to Design in 2013, it's a miracle, really, that Jay has managed to stay the humble, down-to-earth leader I know him to be. And I'm delighted to chat to him today about his journey into leadership. Welcome, Jay. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Hi, thank you for a rather um, incredible introduction. I don't know if we really need to talk about anything else now, do we? <laughs> I know. No, there's lots <laughs> more to talk about. Let's talk about where it all started, Jay. So what were the early milestones on your path to being such an acclaimed and successful designer? Where did it all begin? There are loads of things at play in what happened to me. There were things going on in politics and there were things about where I grew up. So I grew up in um, West Oxfordshire in a relatively small town on the edge of Oxford. And from a really early age, I was drawn to the city, first of all, Oxford, and then secondly, permanently, I guess, London. I always had that urge to that there was something over the horizon that I wanted to go to and or be part of. And I guess that sort of coincided as a teenager and the beginning of design and architecture magazines being available to to lots of different to lots of people and and I buy them I subscribe myself or ask for a subscription for Christmas and you know whether that was for the face magazine or whether it's for blueprint magazine for architecture and design I was really inspired by the various cultures which were sort of developing and and growing out of London at the time and that acted as a magnet to me and I was desperate to get there and the only way I knew or the, or the best or the fastest way for me to get to be involved in that was through uh, art and design, something that I love doing. My route was ceramics, art and economic A-levels at school. And then I went to Oxford Poly to do my foundation course. And really it was there, I suppose, that I started to do really well in something, whereas before I'd kind of just been bottom middle all the way through school, you know, and then it was actually getting there that made me realise that there was something in it that I was actually 
someone was saying that I was doing good stuff and the stuff I was doing was stuff I was loving. And it was that that was one of the early motivations, I think. It's lovely that, isn't it? That's that moment in your life when you kind of find your spark, you find your thing, and then suddenly your desire to do more of it and your passion to become better at it uh, starts to really flow, doesn't it? What happened after that? After that, well, I went, so after foundation, I did really well on my foundation course and got got into Ravensbourne School of Design, which was at the time I, one of the leading places to study design, furniture design, especially furniture and industrial design. Mm. Um, went there again, really enjoyed it. Went to Paris for a while on that sort of Erasmus, the brilliant Erasmus scheme. So I studied in Paris for a little while. But whilst I was at Ravensbourne, I did a, a summer work experience. Uh, oh, I don't know what it was, maybe four, six weeks or something in the summer holidays between the first and second year. And something really remarkable happened there, which had never, which I hadn't really thought about. And that is after the first week of working in this design consultancy, I got paid. And I just <laughs> spent the week really enjoying myself and sort of didn't really feel like I'd done a hell of a lot. You know, I'd obviously been in all the time and, I, and I'd worked as hard as I'd been working at college in this design business. And at the end of the week, they gave me 150 quid. And I was absolutely dumbstruck because I'd had such a great week and I got paid. So, so this this incredible win-win scenario. So after um, I finished my degree, went to the Royal College of Art. And at that point, I, I switched disciplines, actually. So having done furniture and product design at Ravensbourne for my master's, I chose to do the architecture and interiors course at the RCA, which was two years um, post-grad. Um, and I think it was the first day or two I met Ed. I think we were even sitting next to each other in the studio at college and sort of we became friends first um, on the course, uh, started working on a couple of projects out of school. We weren't, we were both feeling a little uninspired by the, the work that was being set to us at the Royal College at the time. I happened to have a Saturday job working in Babendum Oyster Bar and and I had sort of came across these two characters who were cust regular customers and started chatting to them. They had a project, uh, an architectural project they were interested in doing and standing, serving them a cup of tea or coffee or whatever it was, or lunch. I said, well, I'd be interested to do that project. And that's how it started. So they said, okay, well, if you, you know, if you want to throw your hat in the ring, bring your portfolio down and we'll have a meeting. So I literally, after that shift went back up to the college, which is at South Kensington, found Ed and said, I think we might have a project. So we both toured back down South Kensington with our portfolios, saw these guys, got the job. And that was the very beginning of Barbara Osgoby. It's great, isn't it? How that kind of serendipity of that meeting just led to that first, that, that kind of impetus to start it. So I'm really interested to ask you about those early years, Jay, because, you know, compared to many people who sort of start out quite young and launch their own business, you and Ed had an incredible rise right from the very beginning. You know, the beautiful bentwood loop table that you made was instantly picked up and uh, you know mass produced and then now is in you know museum collections how did you deal with having success early you know you were pretty young and, and where did the drive come do you think to help you be so successful so quickly obviously you're hugely talented but i think sometimes it takes more than talent doesn't it you know the funny thing is when although lots of really great things have happened we've actually been working together for a really long time so when you look back, 
the depth of field of the way you see the past is so compressed that it feels like just one great thing straight into the next great thing. And actually, it was a real slog. It was incredibly hard work, very, very long days, weekends, just trying to keep our heads above water financially as much as anything else in the early days. And of course, we had these amazing lucky breaks or good fortune, depending on how you want to look at it, I suppose. But we they were soon forgotten and we were... Ed and I always had this tendency of not really looking behind, but always looking for in front. Um, so I don't think whilst things sort of grew, they evolved and the com- the businesses, well, they weren't even businesses at the beginning. It was just two scummers in a flat <laughs> trying to make a living, really. And then even now, when I look back, I don't feel that we're in any way finished or even that successful. I don't know. It's really a funny mindset that I think we both share actually in that we're only as good as the work that we're doing at the moment in the studio and everything that's happened sort of up until this point is something that we never talk about and I don't know why that is whether it's that we're getting old and we can't remember the past (laughs) it's probably that yeah (laughs) yeah or whether it's just something that we I think he and I Ed and I have always grown up with this very English mindset of pride before comes before a fall there's something also that's quite interesting about being a partnership I know lots of of course loads of our contemporaries aren't in partnership design partnerships or architecture partnerships or art partnerships you know a lot of them are they are the name something very insidious seems to creep in to people who often not always but often to the superstar named person in that because they don't have that counterbalance of normality who have maybe you know known them since they were kids people tend to often sort of spin off into a world of arrogance and self-reflection and and actually more often than not work becomes repetitive because they love the fact their work is identifiable and one of the things that we've always done as a studio is try to resist looking back at our work as well as the accolades for the purpose of being new thinking about things in a different way and bringing a I guess a fresh approach to the things that we're considering in the studio and not trying to regurgitate a a look or a a mode of operating that that many other studios do have because they need to be recognizable so that they can generate new business and it's not something that we've ever tried to do. So interesting and that innovative spirit and ability that you have is definitely something I want to come back to a bit later in the conversation maybe. I'd love to just underline something you just talked about there, Jay, as well, which is when you were talking about always looking forward and not looking back and trying to kind of also stay humble and and not get to that kind of hubristic stage that some people get to when they get too wrapped up in their own sunshine, as it were. Because I think that is so important for leaders as they're growing. And it's a really interesting balance, isn't it, between having that kind of restless curiosity and growing confidence that sparks your energy and sparks your kind of guts, if you like, to get out there and do great things and and break down walls. But at the same time, as you say, staying really grounded and and quite humble. And, And I work with creative leaders, of course, all the time and help them think about having enough confidence to break down the walls that they need to break down and innovate and be heard. But on the on the other hand, yeah, to keep listening to people and not not get to the point where they believe their own PR too much. So I think you it sounds like you've really found that balance. And I think summarizing it in a way as, you know, don't keep looking back and dwelling in the glories of the past, but just keep that restless kind of almost healthy paranoia and humility is lovely. 
I mean, the minute you think that you've arrived at your destination, then then you stop traveling, don't you? <laughs> Which sounds like the most logical thing to say. But I don't know. I don't think I think it's important to feel that there's always somewhere to go. And and then so you can't rest on your laurels and you can't think, well, I've done it and I'm the bee's knees because before you know it, the carpet gets pulled out from under you and you're back at square one. I mean, that Ed and I often feel that, that way, you know, that we're really lucky to be in the situation that we're in and there's absolutely nothing that guarantees us staying here. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And one of the things, again, that I would really kind of underline because I think there's a parallel into leadership, actually, Jay, is, is the idea of kind of always learning and never feeling that you've quite arrived at the destination. I mean, in a way, that's sort of the point of this podcast, in a sense, is when it comes to thinking about leadership that... You know, the best leaders are always learning, you know, they're always figuring out how to be better at it in the same way that as you as a designer and Ed are always learning how to be even better and how to, you know, keep innovating. So Jay, just turning the conversation to your leadership learning journey, when did you realise that you'd become a leader? I know that sounds a bit of an odd question, but I think for many creative people, they're so brilliant at the thing they do, whether that's being a designer or, you know. TV producer or artist or whatever it is they do. And then one day they kind of realise that they've also become a leader. You know, they're responsible for other people. Uh, they have clients to worry about. When did you have that realisation that you are not just a designer anymore, you were also a leader? And what were some of the lessons maybe around that early time of your leadership? The word leader is not something that I'm really used to. So in terms of when did I first realise that I was considered a leader is probably when you asked me to do this podcast <laughs> but I mean I would put it maybe there's different ways of splitting it so I think in terms of the creative output in other words authored work that goes out into the world I was aware that our studio was a world leading studio quite a long time ago now really and I must admit it did come as a quite a big surprise when we were being asked to give lectures and do talks and the, you know, the audiences got bigger and bigger and projects got more involved and more exciting and we were getting calls from all sorts of different people. So we were leading the design world, certainly leading the design world and representing, you know, British design, which became quite a big thing too for us. But in terms of leading a team of people, I don't honestly see myself as a leader. And I think I don't know what our teams would say to that. I so much more prefer the way of, or the mindset of considering this as a collaboration. And I guess even in collaborations, there needs to be somebody who ultimately makes decisions. I don't know. I don't feel I lead the company. The company is a living organism and perhaps it's more a question of nudging when needed rather than leading. The connotation for me as leadership is, um, you know, the person at the front, you know, holding the standard and everyone's following them you know into battle and actually in the way that I am in business is not quite like that it is I seek to inspire people but I really feel like I'm on on their right hand side or their left hand side not in front of them yeah I love that I mean actually what's kind of delightfully ironic about what you just said there Jay from a kind of coach's perspective theorist if you like is that you know, you have this lovely humility about saying, you know, I don't really see myself as a leader. And yet actually the way that you're describing what you do is the epitome of modern creative leadership in some ways, I think. So I talk a lot with leaders who very much do consider themselves to be leaders about making the shift from being the kind of hero leader to being the host leader. You know, because modern creative organisations really need to be collaborative. The one person doesn't have all the answers anymore. And so actually the best 
modern leaders are very much in service of the team and in service of the organisation. And they don't see it, as you say, about them being out at the front, waving the standard. They see it much more as kind of creating the conditions for creativity to thrive. And that is absolutely about collaboration. So, you know, it kind of makes me smile listening to you because you are beautifully modest about your leadership, but actually what you're enacting and what you're saying there is very modern. So one of the things that I've noticed recently is that, um, and I don't know if this has been happening for a long time and I've only just realised or whether it's something that's a new thing, but certainly in terms of the way our clients and companies and entrepreneurs want to procure creative services now or design skills seems to have really changed in that rather than looking for a standout creative individual to work on a project you know someone who's renowned in the industry particularly I think people are so much more now looking for the team that they're going to work with and it's something that we're often often happens with us it's not you know it's not just the lead who's named on the on the project or who's introduced the client at the beginning but it's the whole team and I think that's to try and understand where the um, chemistry is amongst the team and how how likely they are to be able to collaborate in a meaningful way instead of from the client's point of view having this sort of creative dude walk into the room and run the project and deliver sort of sheer genius I think that myth is dead in the ditch honestly I think it's for me anyway that kind of way of being is over and I can think of so many instances in the past as I've been practicing or designing where that kind of famous designer say or architect has done that and ruined it for generations of designers in their wake by really turning off the company or the entrepreneur to creative services because they've just gone in and they've winged it and they've gone you know they have tried to lead you know with a capital l and um in fact it full caps every word every letter of the (laughs) word lead and it's just destroyed it because it's been a vanity project rather than something that's really collaborative clever and meaningful you know again it's something i talk to my clients a lot about when i'm coaching i coach teams a lot and i always say you know teams are the engines of modern organizations very few things are done by one person anymore and actually I was talking to a a client just recently about the challenges they have where they have lots of high ego experts who are brilliant at what they do but actually it's problematic when they don't work well together and they actually said to me I'd rather have sometimes a slightly less talented person but who can work really well on a team because that's what I need now so I suppose the obvious question from that is I know you're really, really good at collaborating with a whole range of different people. And when you are bringing together your team to collaborate with another team, how do you influence good collaboration? What kind of behaviours do you encourage? What seems to help it work? I mean, good (laughs) humour, mutual respect, of course. And it isn't easy. You know, I, I can think of recent examples where it's not been easy at all, where it's been difficult to do this. Mostly, I think... We're in a fortunate position of when our teams meet other teams, we've generally been sought out. And so our team is fully prepared because we all know that we would love to do the project. And, and generally there's a sense of excitement at the beginning of something. In fact, that's probably common with almost all projects that, you know, most projects start with a degree of excitement by from the client side or from the, you know, from the company side and the designer side or the agency side in that everybody honestly should believe in this sort of mutual goal and you know, if there is an ego in the room, it doesn't take long for it to be moved out. I guess we do actively hone the team to be the right set of personalities. But I think 90% of the time, everybody has the sh- a shared goal of creating a brilliant thing. 
and there's excitement. Everyone's also generally prepared for the work that it's going to need. So there's never a kind of worry about the workload. I don't think it's always kind of mutually understood that to achieve something great, you really have to work hard to get there. I think one of the things that really stands out, Jay, and what you're saying there, which I really agree with, is what happens at the beginning of the project? Really, are you going to set it up to succeed or not? And uh, again, I think that's really smart, the way that you're talking about those different aspects of things that, you know, who's really driving it? Have you got the right people on the team? What kind of behaviours do you encourage? Do you get kind of the egos parked at the door early? I really think that often when teamwork goes wrong, it's because people haven't spent enough time early thinking, how are we going to actually make this work? The other thing that tends to happen as companies get bigger, sometimes creative agencies forget what they're, how they got there in the first place. And they got there in the first place by creating standout ideas, which weren't always what the client had asked for. My experience is the minute you start delivering what the client asks for, you're you're in a hiding to nowhere. You'd simply become a servicing, a, a, an agency that services the needs that, that they think they have at the beginning. And I think if you're a really great creative company, you always create something that no one actually anticipated at the beginning. But it's some, something so much better than they could have imagined. And that's our job, I think. It's really fascinating hearing you talk about that because it is so challenging, isn't it? And actually, I'd quite like to kind of stay with that sort of creative process and how you really push for excellence just for a minute because I think you know one of the things that you and Ed are perhaps best known for is the diversity of your work and your incredible kind of sustained ability to innovate you know so for example the on and on chair that you recently designed which I think I'm right in saying is made from the world's first endlessly recyclable plastic is that right yeah yeah that's correct yeah I, I love that kind of sense of restless curiosity in what you you were quoted as saying design is the answer to a very difficult question and again going back to that relationship with the client and your relationship with your team creating the conditions to kind of keep being restless and innovative to answer those difficult questions isn't easy and it's such a challenging quest for so many creative companies so you know what else have you learned about how to lead for that you've given some great insights already but is there anything else that you would say well I think it's also about this I think that everybody knows when something isn't working but most people are happy to just let it play out. And I think one of the most important things to do uh, is in a senior role in a creative business is to have the kind of confidence, I suppose, to just say, hey, look, come on, we all know this isn't working. And I know it's a real bloody nightmare, but we need to start again um, and not sell a crap idea just because we're running out of time. Staying on running out of time, one of the things that I would love to ask you about is what it was like to lead the 2012 London Olympic Torch Project. I mean, it's probably one of your most high profile jobs and I know you did it under incredible time pressure, so the time was running out, but you did the most spectacular, iconic job of creating this beautiful torch, which was, I think, quite a design and construction challenge. So what was it like leading that project and how did you keep yourself and your team cool as the clock ticked towards this immovable deadline. When we were talking just now about how you kick off a project, I was thinking about that particular project and how we how we did start it. In a way, it was unusual because the selection process for the design designer to work on the project was really drawn out. They'd invited invitations from a thousand companies. We got down to 50 and then it was shortlisted to 25. And then the last five firms who were in the running or designers in the running were then briefed by LOCOG. Uh, we had this sort of whole day immersion where we were told all the things that the torch had to do and a little bit about the history of the, the torch relay and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a whole whole day. And at the end of the day, they said, um, right, so you now need to come back to us with 
um, a fully designed torch, Olympic torch, and uh, a manufacturing method statement. We were like, okay, that's a hell of a lot to do. Of course, we'll do it. Uh, and we thought well, they were going to say, come back in two months or something. And they said, Can, you have to come back next fr- next Friday. So, uh, and there were five of the, five firms pitching. We all worked, I imagine, the same goes for the other firms. We sort of worked day in, day out for a week and then presented it. But it was the one of the happiest days of my life, I think, probably when we actually got the project because it's something I've wanted to do since since I was a kid, representing your country in industrial design or in design is really difficult to do in any any field. And really the only thing you can do is an Olympic torch for your country in your city. So it's it was a good one. But um, yeah, the, the, the downside of all of that was that um, the torch, they'd actually forgotten that they needed a torch for the <laughs> London Games. How could they forget that they needed a torch? That's extraordinary. They completely forgot. It totally slipped wow. their mind. And actually they were 18 months into... So normally it takes three years to design a torch and a year and a half into what should have been a three year program, someone realized that they didn't, someone probably started talking about, well, the torch relay and realized they didn't have a torch. We delivered the London 2012 torch in half the time. It could have gone hideously wrong for many times along the way, but we had fantastic client representation in amongst LOCOG, London Organizing Committee, the team who were running the, the opening ceremony but particularly the the team who were running the torch relay were unbelievably professional and unbelievably behind design uh, i think that the woman who ran it actually she had been working she'd worked in the past in design actually or in creative industries and she really really protected the design all the way all the way through the kind of can't afford it conversations and it's impossible to make conversations she she really really represented us so i found with her a real ally which really helped i mean it would have been it was tough it was really really tough anyway but without the support that we had it would have been a disaster it was incredibly hard work the team worked very long days um at the beginning and 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 actually once we'd won it it continued like that but i think that in this particular case the um the everybody was so focused on the importance of the job that whilst we all worked incredibly hard and um you know, had lots of takeaways late at night to sort of keep keep morale up. I think um, people honestly believed in the project. It was a smooth project. And one of the things that I've learned about running a team or working with other creative people, if you believe it's the right thing to do, that the, that the object or the thing that you're working on is the right answer to the, the question or the brief, and people believe you, then everybody pulls together in the right direction. Absolutely. So, Jay, one of the things I'd love to just ask about is what's come more easily to you as you've grown in seniority, become a leader, whether we like that word or not, and what's been harder for you. So I think that one of the things that can make leadership feel a bit out of reach to talented creative people is if they feel that successful creative leaders were just kind of born like that, that everything came really easily. Um, So Maeve Kennedy, writing in The Guardian a while ago, said about you and Ed that your rise to international stardom has been as seamless as your curvy furniture pieces, which I loved. And on the face of it, it does look like that. You've led these amazing projects with you know numerous successes. But when you think about that journey of leading for innovation, leading under pressure and so on, what do you think your natural strengths have been in growing as a leader? And what's been more of a struggle? What have you had to learn to do? One of the things that we as a studio I suppose but also me and Ed more personally has just been confidence 
I mean, it sounds like the most simple thing in the world, I think. But thinking back to the when we first started a studio in inverted commas, when it was, you know, we had a project and even then, even when we had to phone the client up to sort of talk about difficult things or we'd actually flip a coin to decide who would do it because not ever, both of us dreaded it. I think so much of what actually what has happened has been becoming more confident that things, nothing terrible is going to happen if you get something slightly wrong either, I suppose is the other thing. I think the things that have kept me up more at night than anything else have been personnel issues or people issues um, when something's gone wrong in the team and it, and I know that I have to deal with it in one way or another and that's just horrible I hate that side of things the things which are really easy are leading a team of people with an inspiring idea or or helping push a team forward to find the idea together when you have the idea when you find the the answer it's such a great part of what we do the hard bits are the the thorny tricky parts of starting any business which are simple facts that you have to do everything you know you are the t person and the hr person and the pa and the pr and you know all of those things that's that's just pure slog and within that section of growth are some really difficult awkward moments of realizing you've hired the wrong person or something terrible has happened within the organization that you need to to deal with and my experience is a joy which is not quite equal to the idea of a creative to the sort of creative breakthrough but that is the joy that you find in business is actually when you meet somebody and you hire somebody who's so much better than you are at that particular task and that the freedom that you have as the entrepreneur or the or the lead designer to actually be able to let go of those responsibilities and give them to delegate somebody else is the is one of the key breakthroughs for me that I've learned delegation is so critical to success and so many people don't like to delegate and the people who don't delegate are really not going to end up going anywhere I'm afraid I love what you were saying there Jay about hire better than you it gives you freedom I just think that's so true but a lot of creative people don't have the confidence to hire better than them of course do they because they feel that that's going to sort of threaten their position but what's that all about <laughs> coming from the viewpoint of a team who who are always worried that things are going to collapse at any moment but I can't understand that type of paranoia and whether that's you know going back to what I was saying before about the fact that Ed and I work together and so forth we damn well know there are people out there who are who are, better, who are better than us and we hire them whenever we find them but I'd say that to have that that mindset of hiring someone who's going to take your job is a peculiar thing but then I suppose I've never had a job so I've never <laughs> actually had a job I've never apart from working in restaurants I was never employed nor was Ed but it's a great instinct to hire better than you really it's a fantastic lesson I think to bring yeah. to this conversation so Jay last few questions for you one of which is about the year that we've just had. So 2020, of course, just the most incredible challenge for leaders of any kind of companies. Leadership never been more important, but on the other hand, also really, really stressful. Have you learned anything over that time about, you know, what new behaviours maybe you had to bring or perhaps behaviours that became particularly important to keep your team sane and strong through these tough times we've had to fall back on things that we've learned in the past from other other scary recessions obviously this is so much more than a, a recession because it materially changed the way that we could work but we had to fall back on to things that we'd learned in the past and one of them is not necessarily in terms of the team but in terms of actually keeping the business going is to be diverse and I think one of the things that 
I learned, and I'm not sure really if this is a leadership thing really or a business thing, but certainly one of the things that I learned really early on is to be diversified in what you do, not to be have a singular or a singularity of focus. And so, for example, we have a the architecture design side of our business is called Universal Design Studio, and in the last recession, we in the in the sort of early 2000s we built really great reputation for retail design and we did lots of things like Stella McCartney stores and Mulberry stores and lots of kind of high-end retail and we we were really world leaders in it at that point the recession hit and of course shops closed and there was less work and we we pivoted the business then to focus on cultural projects and started doing lots of gallery work, um, designing exhibitions. We ended up designing the one of the biggest permanent galleries that the Science Museum's ever done, the Information Age Gallery. And, and that saved us. And so I think what I have learned in the past and what we applied to this year, the, our COVID year, has been to be agile as a business, to pivot quickly and to think as a team really really quickly and, and really effectively in terms of where we where revenue could come from and how the strengths of our team can be honed and refocused to uh, to tackle different projects in different sectors. Mm, that's a great answer. Absolutely. And how optimistic do you feel, Jay, about, you know, as a designer, about the future of design in the context of these incredibly challenging times? You know, certain trends are happening out there. There's a huge amount of anxiety and just unrest but also change in the way that people are working the way that they're using their homes now how how is the design world kind of responding and and do you feel that there are you know there's optimism in that I really feel optimistic actually about it I think that we're in a really interesting moment design is changing but it, it has been changing for a long time agencies and creative agencies are changing and I think one thing that I've realized from our recent um, partnership with AKQA and WPP is that people are really seeking out the real things. They're tiring of ephemera. There's, I would dare I say it, tiring a little bit of um, certain digital interactions and people want real experiences. They want spaces, they want places, they want beautiful objects that do real things that don't just need to be chucked out, things which could be useful for life. There's a real desire out there for beauty beauty and experience and beauty and design and I think it's um, more important than ever and something to celebrate you know people are working at home so much more they need to also pivot they need to be different places from where they were last March and that calls for design thinking the way that we interact the way we travel the way we stay the way we shop all of these things have been shaken up and I think there's going to be a really huge reset across society and I think we're best placed to really help with those transitions and those movements by creating objects experiences in places that support the changes that are coming that's such a nice thing to hear jay in amongst all the doom and gloom it's so great to hear such a coherent exposition of the role of design and how it can respond to what people need right now i think that's wonderful so I'm going to ask you one final question, which is that if you, this is always a tough question, so sorry about that, but if you had to give one piece of advice to your young self, I mean, I know, and I love the modesty that you say, you know, I don't really see myself as a leader, but 
you evidently are and you've led so successfully over the years. If you look back and you maybe you just had a postcard, a beautifully designed postcard, obviously, that you could put one piece of advice on to say when you start your business and you're leading a team and you're leading for creativity, this is the one thing that you need to pay attention to. What's the most important thing you would put on that postcard? That's really interesting. It made me, makes me think of some of my first days in the workshop at university. And one of the technicians came over to me sort of with a fag hanging out of his mouth. And he said, always remember, measure twice, cut once. <laughs> and if I could apply that to everything we've done or done in business as well, which is think twice about it before you do it. You know, I think in lots of partnerships, there's always a, a break and an accelerator. And I think I'm the accelerator and Ed is the, to some extent the break in that he probably thinks three times to my once so meeting between the two and thinking twice before we do anything is is a pretty good motto but I'm not sure whether that would particularly have inspired me as a postcard (laughs) I mean I think think big is a really good one as well which is almost contradicts the first piece of advice there's something that I dare not believe but sort of a coming around sort of coming around to believing which is that if you believe that it could happen it sometimes does Well, I think the Olympic torch is such a brilliant example of that in your work, isn't it? I mean, it was actually a very technically complicated piece of work. Didn't you? I'm sure I heard you had to have some amazing machine like shipped over to make it work. So that was definitely an example of thinking big, wasn't it? Uh, Yeah, that was probably thinking big stroke reckless. Um, But yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, we needed the world's fastest laser cutter to make the torches because when we got the one initially when the manufacturer came back with a kind of time frame for the project, they said, uh, yeah, of course we can do the project. Uh, And I think it's I think they said it's going to take us three years to produce all of these torches and I think at that point we had 12 months so it wasn't it was like you do realize it's 2012 the games right <laughs> love that thank you so much today it's been such a pleasure talking to you just interesting inspiring so down to earth I just think there are so many lessons to be drawn you may not call yourself a leader but you are definitely role modeling the kind of modern leadership that makes creative companies thrive and I'm so grateful to you for spending the time with me thank you so much thank you thanks for asking me That was a fascinating conversation with the inspiring and incredibly human Jay Oscarby. I particularly loved what Jay said about how for him, leadership is essentially about creating successful collaborations and how important team dynamics are for that. To really hire people who are better than you or who you think that are better than you and create the freedom and the right team dynamics to park the egos at the door and make sure people are working well together. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that maybe it's given you a little fuel for your own Made Not Born journey, whatever path you're on. If you've enjoyed this episode, please review, share and subscribe to Made Not Born wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram. And finally, if you'd like to know more about my leadership coaching practice, visit growpeople.co.uk. Thanks for listening.